0: I need my Bible. You should have one too. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 12. We will resume. We will not do a Summer Elder series this morning, but we will resume our study through the book of Exodus. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 12, let me just let you know exactly what we're about to do here in case you're not a member of Christ Community Church or not a regular attender. The second Helvetic confession says that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, some of you might be confused about that statement. Let me know, let me tell you what that means. We're using the term the word of God in two different ways there. The first is to say scripture. So the preaching of the word of God, that means the preaching of the Bible, the preaching of scripture is the word of God, meaning that second word of God means that's how God speaks to his people. If you want to hear God speak under the new covenant, you, you sit under the preaching of the word at a local church. And we believe that. Uh, watching online is not the same as being here. Listening to your favorite preacher's sermons on a podcast is not the same thing as a local church. And so we're about to do what we do every week, and that is practice expository preaching Christ-centered preaching here at Christ Community Church because that is how God speaks. So, I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 32, um, and then I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you agree with me, please say, thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread." "'For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. "'Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. "'In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, "'you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. "'For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses.' If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out from the door of his house until the morning. For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you, and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the risen Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bethany and I started dating in March of 2007. She was a junior in high school, I was a freshman in college. She graduated high school in June 2008 we very quickly were engaged. And in August of 2008, she moved to Louisville to go to school at Boyce and to prepare, or to work as we uh, prepared to be married in May of 2009. So from March of 2007 until August of 2008, for the most part, we dated long distance and I would travel to Michigan from Kentucky as often as possible. This story takes place on one of those visits. So my parents live at 13 and Campbell. At the time, Bethany lived near 13 and Shaner. So I would regularly traverse 13 mile due east. That was my route. On one such evening, I was driving back to my parents' house And I was almost home. I had made it to 13 in DeQuinder, right by where Family Video was. And um, I saw the flashing lights in the rear view and was subsequently pulled over. Now, looking back, I know that I was guilty. I can't remember what I was guilty of. I don't know if I was speeding or if I... Ran that light that's right by Helmich Park. Um, but what I do remember is what the, the first thing the police officer said to me when he walked up to my window. He asked, Are you a Christian? To quote Arthur Spooner, I said, File that under C for curveball. I, I didn't see that one coming. Are you a Christian? It turns out that the police officer had noticed that I had my Southern Seminary parking sticker on the back of my car—the sticker you needed to park at the seminary—and and uh, and apparently he was a Christian as well, and so he let me off with a warning, and he wished me well on my theological education. Right? I was, but I was guilty. I was guilty of sin. Dead to rights. But my condemnation was passed over because of the the sign, the seminary sticker that was on the back of my car. This is the idea that we see here in Exodus chapter 12. Yahweh passes over the people of Israel because of the sign of the blood on the doorposts. So it's been over a month since we last studied the book of Exodus together. So I think we probably need to collect or to uh, refresh our collective memory, kind of, on where we're at and what's going on. You know how, when like a new season of a show comes out on Netflix, and Netflix will have like a three minute recap of last season, so you can get back in the headspace of your show and see what's going on? Uh, Well, we won't do a three minute one, but let's do about a 30 second recap of the book of Exodus so far Exodus 1 through 11, just to get our bearings. So remember back back to Genesis, there's a guy named Jacob. He's the grandson of Father Abraham. Jacob is renamed Israel. And Jacob and his 12 sons, or I guess his other 11 sons, move to Egypt to be with Joseph because there's a famine, uh, basically across the Middle East or across the world. And that's where the book of Genesis closes. The book of Genesis ends with all of God's people, this family, moving to Egypt. The book of Exodus then opens 400 years later and now Jacob's descendants, the, the sons of Israel, the sons and daughters of Israel, are, uh, uh, they have been fruitful and they have multiplied. Uh, Jacob's family, the population of his family could rival a small nation. Because that's true, because there are so many Hebrew people, the Egyptians then enslave the Hebrews in an effort to keep them under their thumb, to keep Israel under the thumb of the Egyptians. As the book of Exodus opens, the Pharaoh at the time is systematically aborting all of the young Hebrew baby boys. But in his providence, Yahweh saves, preserves a baby who is named Moses, who then in God's providence is adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in Pharaoh's palace. When Moses is 40 years old, he murders an Egyptian slave driver who is beating a Hebrew slave. And for fear of his life, then Moses runs away to Midian, where he marries his boss's daughter, has some kids. And for the next 40 years, Moses shepherds his father-in-law's flock as Yahweh is preparing him to shepherd God's people. At 80 years old, then, Yahweh appears to Moses in the form of the burning bush, and he commissions him to lead the Exodus. From that point, Moses returns to Egypt. Moses and Aaron, that's Moses' older brother, they confront Pharaoh, and God then judges the Egyptians for their idolatry and their oppression through the ten plagues. Remember, we noted, Pastor Kevin mentioned that the plagues... Uh, by Jewish theologians and historians, have often been called strikes. And that's probably a better term for it. Even in Exodus 12, we hear that terminology that Yahweh strikes the Egyptians. So through these plagues or through these strikes, the Lord is judging the Egyptian people and their idols. This morning in Exodus 12, we find ourselves at the 10th and final strike, the death of the firstborn and the institution of the Passover. Now that we have our bearings, let's look at Exodus 12, 1 through 32 together, and as we do every week here at Christ Community Church, we're not merely interested in what this text originally meant, but we're also interested in how uh, the story of the Exodus or the story of the Passover is connected to our story through the story of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the Passover. The story of the Exodus has been building through 11 chapters to this final plague, this final strike. This final strike of Yahweh against the Egyptians is for their idolatry and for their oppression. The Egyptian people have not loved God and they have not loved their neighbor. And so Yahweh judges them. The last sermon we heard from the book of Exodus was in late July, Pastor Kevin preached from Exodus chapter 11 where the warning for the 10th strike is given. In Exodus 11, Yahweh warns of the final strike. In Exodus 12, Yahweh strikes for a final time. But before he does, Yahweh instructs Israel what they are to do. They are to prepare what's called the Passover feast. Now, it can be easy for us uh, thousands of years later to get lost in some of these ancient instructions. But the point we want to see here is that God is giving his people a meal to mark their redemption. Under the old covenant, the Passover is the meal that God gives his people that is marking their salvation or their redemption. This feast of the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread is to prepare the hearts of God's people for the glorious salvation from slavery that Yahweh is about to accomplish. The feast required two things, an unblemished lamb and unleavened bread. The lamb was to be perfect or unblemished, a male lamb, a year old. That means no sick lambs, no injured lambs. The strongest and most prizeworthy of the flock is what Yahweh requires here. And the bread must be unleavened. The point of the unleavened bread is twofold. Number one, it needed to be unleavened for urgency. You see, it would take time for the dough to rise. And time is not something that the Hebrews had. But secondly, it was didactic. It was to teach them and subsequent generations. Scripture later explains the importance of unleavened bread, and it does so by equating leaven with sin. In Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 12, Jesus Christ warns us of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees. In our call to worship, Pastor Bob read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul uses leaven as a word picture for sin. He does so also in Galatians 5, 9. In recent weeks, we've talked about how this is why for Eucharist every week, we use unleavened bread as a picture of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. If the people here in the Exodus, God's people were going to be acceptable to God, it was going to be because they consumed the righteousness pictured by the unblemished lamb and the unleavened bread. God's people did not have a righteousness inherent to themselves. They were unrighteous. They were sinners. They needed an alien righteousness. God's people needed a righteousness that came from outside of them. And the unblemished lamb and the unleavened bread are pictures of righteousness from outside of them that they are consuming. They are not the righteous ones. God is giving them the sinless one, the righteous one. And then God's people were to take the blood from the Passover lamb and they were to smear it on the doorposts and on the lintels of the door of their homes, and the blood would be a sign that they are set apart, that they are God's distinct people. When Yahweh would strike dead all of the firstborn in Egypt that night, he would pass over every home that had blood on the doorway. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, what kind of God would do this? I mean, we're just reading this scripture and speaking casually about God killing every firstborn in a nation. I suspect that some of you are offended by this. Let me explain what's going on here. This past week, we started our new church-wide annual scripture reading plan. If you want one, we've got a bunch out on the table out in the foyer. It takes us from September to May. And uh, this past week, as we started it, we were reading through the book of Genesis as part of our readings, The book of Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve in his image and that God made a covenant with Adam. If Adam kept the covenant, he would live forever. He and all of his offspring would have eternal life. But if Adam broke the covenant, he would die. Genesis 2, 17. Well, Adam did break the covenant. And so Adam and all of humanity are condemned to death. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Every funeral is a reminder that Adam broke the covenant of works and that we are sinners who deserve death. Sometimes that sentence of death, and I would say usually that sentence of death is executed providentially through disease or natural disaster. But there are other times we see in Scripture where God justly executes that sentence of death in more unique ways. Think about the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. A New Testament example of this would be Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. The Passover is another example of God's right to as creator and covenant keeper, to execute the just sentence of death on his sinful creatures. The firstborn in Egypt were not innocent. They were sinners. They deserved death. Just like you. Just like me. That's why the Hebrews had to be covered under the blood of the Passover, the la- uh, Passover lamb. It's not merely the Egyptians who were guilty and deserve death. You understand? The Hebrews deserve death as well for their sins. They're not being saved from death because of their own goodness or their own righteousness. It is the blood of the unblemished lamb that is protecting them. They are just as guilty as the Egyptians. If any of the Israelites did not seek the crimson refuge, they too would be executed because they are sinners. Not only were the Egyptians sinners in general, but also the nation of Egypt was specifically being judged because of their idolatry and their oppression. So at this point in redemptive history, chronologically speaking, Yahweh had not given the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments, this revelation of the character of God, was written on the heart of humans when God created Adam in his image. So let me give you an example. Even though the 10 commandments weren't given until Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, if, if Adam had gone to the tree of life and chopped off a branch and carved and fashioned it into an idol and bowed down and worshiped that idol, Adam would have been guilty of sin even though the first commandment had not yet formally been given. Here's another example. If Adam were to take a branch off the tree of life and fashion it into a baseball bat, and he were to beat Eve to death with it, he would have been guilty of sin, even though the sixth commandment had not yet been given. The same is true of the Egyptians. They had not heard the Ten Commandments, but in verse 12, Yahweh says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. I am Yahweh. The Egyptians had broken the first four commandments over here on the wall through their idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. As we moved through the first nine strikes, we pointed that out, that with each of the plagues, with each of the strikes, Yahweh is specifically judging an idol that the Egyptians worshipped. In the Passover, Yahweh most ultimately is judging Pharaoh because Pharaoh was worshipped as divine. And Pharaoh's son then would have been considered the son of God. The Egyptians also broke the latter six commandments. They enslaved and oppressed the Hebrew people. Pastor Andrew talked about that a little bit this morning in one of our Bible classes. I want to encourage you, if you haven't come to a Bible class at 9.30, to, to do so. A lot of good content and discussion there. Slavery is a sin. The Bible has always viewed slavery as a sin. The Exodus narrative, which is a prototype of salvation in Christ, is salvation from slavery. The Egyptians had enslaved the Hebrews. The Egyptians had systematically aborted a generation of Jewish baby boys. Breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The just penalty for breaking God's law is death. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Adam sinned and death passed to all of humanity because all sinned. So in the Passover, we see that simultaneously God is saving and he is judging at the same time. Yahweh saves the Hebrews through his judgment of the Egyptians. This simultaneous act of salvation and judgment was to be remembered forever. The Passover meal was not merely to be celebrated on this First occasion, but it was to be an annual feast. God's people celebrated the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for hundreds of years. In their misunderstanding, the Jewish people still celebrate Passover to this day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was in part to remember. Yahweh says, it shall be for them a memorial day. The Hebrew word zikaron implies not merely remembering an event, but a reliving of it. Listen to this helpful footnote from the Net Bible, New English Translation. It says, the point of the word remember in Hebrew is not simply a recollection of an event, but a reliving of it, a reactivating of its significance. In covenant rituals, remembrance or memorial is designed to prompt God and worshiper alike to act in accordance with the covenant. The Passover was not merely for this specific generation of God's people, but every generation was to remember and relive this salvation. The feast was in part for teaching subsequent generations of the great and merciful acts of the Lord. Verses 26 and 27 say, When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. God's people were commanded to teach their children of the salvation and judgment that God poured out in the Passover. Notice also in verses one and two that Israel's national and liturgical calendar was to be structured around the Exodus. Ligand Duncan says, we see in the first two verses that time itself is to be wrapped around this historical event of God's redemption. The feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread was Israel's highest holy day and their lives revolved around it. The same is true for us as New Covenant Christians. Now, one way that we do this here at Christ Community Church is that we observe the church calendar. We observe the seasons of Advent and Christmas and Easter and uh, Pentecost, Ascension, Trinity, all these things. Uh, We would, of course, say that it's not mandatory for Christians to observe the church calendar, but it is certainly helpful. What is mandatory for Christians, though, is to go to church on Sunday. That is non-negotiable. Scripture leaves no wiggle room that Sunday is the Lord's day. Pastor Mike mentioned it earlier, it is the new covenant Sabbath. It is the first day of the week. Monday is not the first day of the week. I don't care what your work or school calendars tell you. Sunday is the first day of the week. That's a pagan understanding to say that Monday's the first day of the week. Jesus Christ resurrected on Sunday. And so our lives revolve around the gathering of God's people on the first day of the week in celebration and worship of the risen Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs> because Jesus Christ, why? Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament and specifically of the Passover. You see, for hundreds of years, God's people rehearsed the story of the Passover annually at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they did so until the final Passover arrived in the flesh. The Passover was never the destination. It was always a signpost pointing us to the true and final Passover lamb. The Passover was a providential picture in time and space leading us to Christ, our Passover lamb. Pastor Bob read that earlier from our call to worship, 1 Corinthians 5.7, Christ, our Passover lamb. Mentioned just a few minutes ago, the scripture reading plan. Not only have we been reading through Genesis, but we've also been reading through the gospel of John. In John 1.29, John the baptizer says of Jesus Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dr. Jim Hamilton, professor at Southern Seminary, says that the Exodus is the great archetype of salvation in Scripture. It is a type of what God has done finally and fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the point, the intention, the telos, the goal of the Passover is to lead us to the gospel. And the gospel is the announcement that God is our holy creator. And just like Adam, just like Israel, just like the Egyptians, we are guilty of breaking God's law. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just a few minutes ago, Pastor Mike led us in our weekly confession and pardon, where scripture reminds us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you say you're not a sinner, if you say sin is not real, you are deceived. Adam broke the covenant, and we are guilty in Adam. We are born with a sin nature and because we are born with a sin nature, we do sinful things. We sin in thought, word, and deed. We sin by what we do and we sin by what we left undone. Because of our sin, we deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. And if that were the end of the story, it would be just, but it would be depressing. If that were the whole story, it would, God would still be righteous. God would be just. There would be no wrong in him to send every human who ever lived to eternal conscious punishment in hell because of their sin. It would be depressing, but it would be right. It would be just. But thanks be to God, that is not the end of the story. For us and for our salvation, the Nicene Creed says. The father sent the son to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His name is Jesus of Nazareth and he lived a truly human life yet without sin. Hebrews four fifteen, Because Jesus did not break the law of God in thought, word, or deed, he is the true and final spotless lamb of God. Just as the Passover lamb was slaughtered and its blood covered Israel from God's wrath, Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing God's wrath against sin for all of his people. In the Passover, God spared the sons of his people, but he could only do so because on the cross he did not spare his son. Exodus 12.30 says that there was a great cry in Egypt. Over the death of the firstborns. Matthew 27 46 says that of Jesus as he died, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was then buried. And on the third day, he resurrected from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that God the Father accepted his sacrifice and that our sins are paid for. Now everyone who will place their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved from God's wrath. What does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? Being saved means that our sins are forgiven and that we have hope That when Jesus returns, he will raise us from the dead and we will live with him forever. It means that your heart is changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Being saved. Well, how are we saved? We're saved by placing our faith in Jesus alone. What does that mean? The Reformed tradition has long talked about faith with three components knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, I know we have some visitors here, so I want to be really, really clear. I was going to look around for a chair. There's not a chair up here, but I want you to picture a chair in your mind's eye, okay? Take a chair. If I'm going to sit on the chair, first off, I need knowledge of what the chair is, you know? If I'm like an alien who dropped in from outer space and have never seen a chair before, you know, I I need to know what's going to happen, when I sit on it, right? I need to know that it's a chair, that it was specifically designed to be sat upon, right? That it has four legs that are sturdy, and they're going to hold me. That's why I'm not going to sit in one of the youth group chairs, because that was not specifically designed for your boy, okay? But there are chairs that are, all right? So I need to know that it's a chair. I need the knowledge that, that that's what it is, and that's what it's supposed to do, But that's not enough. I'm not gonna sit in it just by having knowledge of the chair, right? I need to assent that all of those facts are correct. Like, I I need to genuinely believe that it was designed to hold me if I'm gonna sit in it. And finally, I need to actually sit in the chair. I need to trust the chair enough to sit my bottom down on the chair. This is what we mean by faith in Jesus Christ. You must have knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Everything we just rehearsed, the holiness of God, your sinfulness, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in your place. You need to know those things. There's no one who's a Christian who doesn't know who Jesus is. There's no one who's a Christian who doesn't know what Jesus did. Knowledge is essential, but knowledge is insufficient. You must also have assent. You can't merely know things about Jesus. There are a lot of people in the world who know all the facts about Jesus, but don't think it's true. You must also assent to the validity of these truth claims that Jesus is the perfect son of God who died in your place, and if you trust in him, you will be saved. You you have to think that's real. But even that falls short of saving faith. You must have knowledge, you must have assent, but finally, you must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. You must repent and believe. And if the Holy Spirit has changed your heart, you will turn from your sin and you will turn toward Jesus Christ. You will crucify your pride and you will trust in Jesus alone to save you. So I could sum that up in one statement. What does it mean to trust in Jesus alone to save me? This is what it means. That if you were to stand before Christ on the last day in the final judgment, and you will, just so you know, every one of us are going to stand before Jesus on the last day in judgment. So on that day, If Jesus were to ask you why you don't deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell, your only answer is this. I do. I do deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. But Jesus, you took that for me on the cross. And my faith is in you. If you say anything more or anything less than that in your heart about Jesus, you're not a Christian. But if your only hope in life and death is God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus alone by faith, then there's nothing anyone or anything can do to take you away from Jesus. Faith alone. And the gospel beckons you today repent, and believe the gospel of Jesus. And everyone who does trust in Jesus is then called to remember and relive this salvation at the Lord's Supper. Like God's old covenant people, we too have a meal to remember and relive our salvation. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he transformed the Passover meal into the Holy Eucharist, and he commanded us to do this in remembrance of him. This is why I said earlier that the Jewish people are today even still confused in their continual observance of the Passover. I say that not because Christians want to dismiss Jewish history or dismiss Jewish culture, but because God instituted the Passover to point us to Jesus. That's the whole point. That's the reason why He did it. This would be like driving all the way to Disney World and stopping at the sign and taking pictures of your vacation and going home. That's just the sign. You didn't even get to go ride the People Mover, which is the bomb. I love the People Mover. That's the point of it. The Passover is merely a sign pointing us to Jesus Christ. The new covenant meal of remembrance is not the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is the Lord's Supper. And just as God's old old covenant people were to teach their children via the Passover, we too must teach our children via Holy Communion and baptism and the Word. Can I can I challenge you parents especially those of you who are here regularly members regular attenders don't be satisfied with your children simply hearing the instruction at the eucharist each week from whatever pastor is leading that portion of the liturgy talk to your kids about communion talk to your kids about the gospel talk to your kids about baptism Explain to them that the unleavened bread pictures the sinless body of Jesus Christ. Explain to them that the wine pictures the blood of Christ that covers us like the blood of the Passover lamb covered God's people. Teach them that the Lord's Supper is for those who believe. And teach them that Jesus communes with his people every week at the Lord's table. As we have feasted on the word and as we prepare To feast on this holy meal, our hearts should be humble and they should be thankful. The word Eucharist literally means give thanks. We should be humble because God's word is revealing to us that we deserve eternal death because of our sin. We rightly deserve that. But we should be thankful because in Christ, God's wrath has passed over us for all who believe in Jesus. And in response, in thankful response, we should live lives of obedience in thankfulness for the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in our place. And we should tell anyone who would listen that he or she can be saved through Jesus alone. When I was pulled over all those years ago by that police officer, I was guilty as sin. But my guilt, my legitimate guilt was passed over because of the sign protecting me on the back of my car. In the same way, Yahweh passed over the children of Israel because of the sign of the blood on the doorway. He did so because hundreds of years later, he would not pass over his only begotten son on the cross. Now all who trust in Christ alone experience the true and final Passover. God passes over our sins for all eternity because his son Jesus, the Lamb of God, bore the wrath of God for the sins of God's people. And that is how the story of the Passover connects to our story through the story of Jesus. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus Christ took the Passover meal and he transformed it into the Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And every week at the Lord's Supper, we remember and we relive the true and final meaning of the Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins. The blood of Jesus covers us so that the wrath of God passes over us. Every week as we gather around this table, we do so to remember and proclaim Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that your word would not return void, and we believe that you have promised that to be true. We pray for anyone here in the room who is not trusting in Jesus alone to save them, that your Holy Spirit would change their heart, open their eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And Father, please allow them to place their faith in Christ alone. Father, we also pray for those of us in the room who do believe, for those who are suffering in sin or suffering uh, through sickness, mental, emotional, relational. Lord, we would ask for your grace through your word. We would ask that we would be strengthened through the sacraments as we witness and participate in them this morning. And Father, we pray that we would be humble and thankful, that you would teach our heart to pray as your son Jesus commanded us to pray when he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.